Now, when you hear the word prayer, I want you to think about what might come to mind. What are your earliest memories of it? How do you perceive prayer, maybe both in the church and in your own lives? And for me, as I think about it, I have very particular memories. You know, I, I remember while I believe and know my mom would have especially had a rich home prayer life, my first exposure to it in the church was in a traditional environment where there were very long written prayers that were read. And one of the things I experienced early on was that the priest or the clergy or the pastor changed their voice when they prayed. Have you ever seen that happen? Suddenly the voice got different. And the wording became a wording that we didn't talk in normal circumstances like, oh gracious father, we beseech thee. We beseech thee today in the heavens and upon the earth. Like, I don't even know what that means. And I found myself, I actually remember as I got to my teen years and the prayers seemed to get longer, getting more irritated. This isn't my most godly moment. I was like, oh, what are, ah. Then we have other times we experience this. Have you ever seen the prayer yellers? I mean, someone who gets really passionate. Passion's a great thing, as well as written prayers are beautiful. I, I'm telling you this was my exposure to them, not that it is even fair, but it, the people who yell, Lord, we want you to come now! Come on down! I think it's like leading them down to the price is right. I'm not sure what it meant. It just freaked me out. And then there were times where I won't even get into the, when you hear someone pray and you're almost evaluating it. Have you ever done that? Oh God, we thank you God that you're God and God, I love you. God. I think I heard God eight times in that sentence. I'm not even sure what it means. I'm not praying, I'm just evaluating. And, and I'll tell you this, when I got older and I got more comfortable with prayer, have you ever asked someone else to pray out loud and watched? I think it would be like you just asked them to either give you a million dollars or take a bullet. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. Have you ever asked someone to pray out loud? And, and maybe you're even feeling it right now. He is not gonna make us pray right now in front of other people. I mean, the fear that is instilled in people when you say, hey, do you mind? This happens for me with premarital, uh, oftentimes because I've done a fair amount of weddings. I'll say to the couple, have you guys ever prayed together? So would you be comfortable with praying together? And they just look straight ahead. Uh, I've given thanks for food. Like, it's scary. We have a lot of confusion about what it is. And I think oftentimes when you meet with people outside of the church, they perceive, and even inside the church, will often say, why bother praying? What prayer typically is to us is something we ask for, and if God's there, he'll answer. And that's what we reduce prayer to. It is just this simple thing. I don't connect to God. I don't know what it means to follow him. I don't know what this idea of prayer is. And oftentimes we just think it's a great thing for someone else. You been there? I mean, it's really confusing. Yet the scripture talks about it over and over and over again. One of the most impacting passages for me about it is in Acts. This is after Jesus has gone to heaven and it says they join together constantly in prayer. And this is talking about the disciples along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was with the brothers. Now, when you hear constantly a prayer, how long do you think that's for? Have you thought about it? It's for 10 days, constantly. No phones, no TV. Does that, to any of you, seem unreasonable? I mean, if you're dead level honest, you go, really, 10 days? That's a nice idea, you're kidding me, right? I mean, do we ever get overwhelmed by that? I do. I hear about this and I think, it is a wonderful idea. How does it happen? And, and I wanna offer two things, and we're gonna deal with one of them specifically that I think lessen our commitment in our pursuit of prayer. 
One of them is we've reduced prayer to I ask for things for me and those I love most. And if God's there, maybe he'll answer them. And if he doesn't, or if bad things happen, why would I ever pray? We've reduced it to something much less. In other words, we have a very small picture of what it is. And that's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna expand our view of prayer, I hope, over these four weeks. But there's another piece while we look at the practices I don't think we reckon with. And I'll say it from my point of view, but I think I speak for all of us. We are incredibly self-sufficient. Why do we need to ask God for anything? What's the point? I'm telling you, I'm not sure we're very prayerful because I think we're pretty, like the rest of the world, things are pretty good. I'm not sure I need much. I'm not sure what I'll ask for. I'm not sure how to do it. And so today, I'm hoping, while we look at practices, and we're gonna look at these over four weeks, some ways to expand how we view prayer, I want us to consider in that, maybe part of why we're not prayerful is we actually don't think we have much we need. And maybe we've limited the definition of it. Let let me give you a, a better picture of it because when scripture describes prayer, we again tend to reduce it to something about just asking God for things. I want to just take you to near the end of Jesus' life, but when he, before he goes to the cross and dies and then rises. He's with his followers. He's with his closest friends, his disciples. And he says this idea, remain in me, remain in my love, and I will remain in you. Now, in this section, when he says it, the word literally means make me your home. And the reason I want to say that is we need to begin to look at prayer as the way with which we make Christ our home. The way in which we relate and connect and are with him. The way we're with the very Father, as Jesus refers to God the Father. That prayer is something much more than asking and seeing what happens to actually engaging and being close. And so with that in mind, over these four weeks, we're going to look at some very specific ways we can do this. And I'm going to say it to you again. Prayer is for everyone. I want to give you a picture of this before we get into the practices. Before Jesus walked the earth, God's presence was with Israel. And the way it was couched, the way he kept his presence with them was through a temple. There were three gears, kind of three ways even to get in, different tiers to get closer. And only one priest could get to that nearest place in what's called the Holy of Holies, only one day a year. There were these curtains and rooms keeping us from him. When Jesus dies on the cross, one of the pictures we have is this curtain being torn. And the very image is God is no longer hidden. He's here for everyone. So the thing I want you to understand is, did you know that God wants you to be close to him? Every one of you. Go ahead and think of all the excuses you have. No, it's not me. You don't realize. No, it's not me. I'm not that wired that way. No, it's not me. You do not know what my life is like. No, it's not me. I don't really have that much I need to ask for. No, it's not me. I have wrong. Or in the words of the Grinch, wrong all. I'm telling you, God made you all to be close to him. And the problem is we don't really understand what prayer is and we don't really feel the need for it or for him. So we're gonna look at four practices over these four weeks. I'll go through them and then we're gonna take the first one today. The first is scripture, the actual engagement in scripture, both in even just praying scripture and how we reflect on it, how we read in it. That's all part of when anytime you read, they say they were in prayer, this is part of it. Always part of it. 
We'll look at a particular practice to be helpful. The second is what we typically talk to about prayer, which is intercession. It means asking God for things, asking him to be involved. But we're gonna get a little different look at it next week on that. A third practice, which is very lost on us, is the practice of silence, the idea of just sitting before God and what that means. We're gonna look at that in week three. And then in week four, we've invited Craig Dennison, who's the founder of First 15, which many of you have utilized as an app that's a great app to kind of get some of these practices going. He's gonna come and talk to us about the role of worship in prayer, what that does in our lives and how God moves. So with the idea of scripture, I'm gonna take you to a particular practice, but I want you to get, before I do it, I want you to kind of think about how scripture has been viewed over church history. So scripture's always been seen as an aspect of prayer. In fact, much of the early prayers are simply scriptures that are read back. They're ways to recite to God who he is and what he does. We're praying back to him these things. But I want you to understand too that scripture, if any of you have grown up in any traditional environment in the church, Uh, you probably had scripture readings in your services. Oftentimes in any traditional environment, there's an Old Testament, a New Testament, and a gospel reading. So we have it from, the Old Testament is the book that are written before Jesus came. The New is after he's been here, the gospels, and and then the gospels itself are the accounts of his life. So the idea is that the community is to read the Bible together, that that reading of it is the prayer over the community. It's an infusing of who God is. It's a way we make him our home, which is a great thing to do collectively. The problem is if that's all you do, people tend to kind of lose what that means. They tune out and they don't learn to discover God on their own as well. They just do it together. Now, for much of history, it was believed that people couldn't manage the reading of Scripture. And lots of times we were told, you shouldn't be reading it unless we tell you how to understand it, unless the the clergy are explaining it to you. Now, in our movement, and many like us today, we emphasize reading it alone, which is great. You should be reading it alone. We believe the Spirit speaks to you and leads you in that. But alongside of that, we tend to read it still with our minds and kind of with our principles. This is what we're supposed to understand from it. It's, we call it a historical critical method that we read through. What is this exactly saying? What does it mean? So what I want to do today is take you to an ancient practice, uh, and I'm going to explain it to you. I, w- I want to preface it this way. Uh, I've, I've been piloting this before I bring it to you. So I, I have some confidence that it's something I've been using in my own quiet I've worked on it with the staff. We've done it with our board. I've done it with a whole group of people as they're learning to be with God in prayer. I've done it with missionaries in Europe and in Asia, and I found it seems to be helpful. So I'm going to explain it to you, and then we're going to practice it a little bit today. It's called um, Ignatian Contemplation. Sounds good, doesn't it, when you say it? You, you just start saying you're doing this, and people will think you are truly a theologian and intellectual. I thought I'd get my Bible out. Uh, practicing Ignatian Contemplation? Why, yes, I am. Doesn't it sound good? Ignatius is a church, I mean, he would be considered, I I think he's actually canonized, he's a saint. We go back to the 1400s, the 1500s for the time he he lived. uh, And it's named after him, though he's not the author of it. So just so you have a little background on Ignatius, he had had, uh, grown up in Spain, he'd been in the military, he went through some injuries, ends up in a hospital, which were often run by by the monastics uh, at that time. So while he was injured, he began reading things like Francis of Assisi, things from church history, and in that point in the hospital became a follower of Jesus. What he became was ultimately the leader of the Jesuit movement, which was kind of a resurgence of the church after all the struggle that went on through the Reformation. 
And so he began to develop practices. There's one called the prayer of examine. But along this, one of them he developed in the reading of scripture is when narrative accounts, it's called this contemplation. It was authored actually, I think by Francis of Assisi. I know you don't care about all the detail, but I want you just to understand a little of the history. Francis began to just put himself in the passage. If you think about it, it's really a simple idea that you're using your imagination. It began with like reading the accounts of the incarnation and saying, what would it be like to have been in the crib, to be there when Jesus is born? You, you experience the text differently through your imagination. In fact, maybe I can help you this way. How many of you have been to Disney, either world or Disneyland? Just raise your hands. A lot of you have. How many of you have ever done the ride Soren? Are you familiar with Soren? Some of you have, a lot of you haven't. So Soren's in Epcot. It's this ride that you, you sit in these seats, but they move around and you basically fly through different spaces in the, on the planet, but you move in the seat. So it's not just you watch it, you feel as if you're in it. T- take a look. You, I'm sorry, I couldn't get the seats here today, but you can at least see the, a little bit of the video from it. If you've been on that ride, it just takes me back how it feels like it suddenly comes to life. I'm there, I'm in it. That's the very same principle of reading scripture. How can it be that we actually enter the story instead of we simply read for principles and understanding? How does it become something we walk into? And so I wanna give you just a couple of ideas of this and then we're gonna, I'm gonna walk through a few passages with this together. It's simply the idea of putting yourself in the story So before I I do this, I'll just tell you a few quick ones for me. So when I started this practice, uh, especially when you look at Jesus' life and the accounts of what happens and you look at Acts, are there two very narrative areas where you you hear stories? So one of the ones I I did early on was the transfiguration. This is a moment when Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain and something pretty crazy stuff happens. It's Peter, James, and John. So I decided I'm gonna be John in this story. And I, I kind of go, okay, I'm going to think about this as if I'm John. So I'll just tell you a little what happened for me. So in the story, Jesus goes up on the mountain. They're all there with him. And suddenly he gets really shiny, it says. Like his, glory, his glorified body appears to them and Moses and Elijah are there with them. It's an amazing moment. And I'm, so I'm thinking, man, that must have been amazing for John to see. that. It's, they talk about it much later after he rises. It truly impacted them deeply. But in the moment of this, Peter chimes in. Now I'm John, I'm listening to Peter talk. And he goes, hey, Lord, it's good for us to be here. We should make three altars. Now what happens is this huge cloud comes and lights get, gets dark. So I went, if I'm John, you know what I'm thinking? I'm gonna kill you, Peter. 
because you're gonna kill us. Like, I'm literally going, I am worried about what just happened. I'm freaked out. I wish you'd shut your mouth. Here you go again. Now, I'm not saying John actually felt that way, but, but do you get a picture of how I'm suddenly in the passage differently than if I just read it? I'm suddenly considering what might go on. I'm not saying John felt that way, but it put me in a different perspective on the text. And it made me think much differently, even about what transpires afterwards and how it does. I'll give you another one. This is in, in the account of Acts. In fact, it's, it's actually one that's one of my favorite passages because Peter, uh, before he's filled with the Spirit and he's walking with Jesus, does a lot of things that seem really stupid. Uh, but we get to Acts 3 and Peter and John heal this guy. They're walking in during the prayer times of, of the temple and the guy begs for money. He says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have, get up. And it says the guy, literally his muscles grow and he gets up and he stands up. Peter helps him up and he's leaning on Peter. And then I love what Peter says after this. They're all freaking out at it. And he goes, at what happens? And he says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if we did it by our own power or godliness that we made him walk? And then he goes on to share the power of Jesus. Now, if I were in that place, I think I would have enjoyed him getting healed and being part of it. I think I'd have felt like, God used me. I'm awesome. I found myself really struggling with how is Peter so clear that he didn't take any ego out of it and he was very clear to make sure they knew it was God and not him. It means something of the spirit was in him that I'm not having. Do you, do you see how that leads you to a different pre presentation and posture because you're in the text? I just wanted you to get a picture of it. We're gonna walk through a few. The, the best way I know to, I would like to do this where I could go, I'm gonna read it and you can all practice it. We'll come back and talk, but I obviously can't do this in this size room with this many people. So I'm gonna walk you through the ones, some I've done, but these are some questions that might be helpful. You might even wanna take a screenshot of it if you don't have them. Things like, what are your thoughts and feelings and questions? What might the character be thinking, feeling, or asking? You will often find that your perspective is different than the perspective of the person you're placing yourself in because they're in a different place. And what is God showing you? So I wanna walk you through two passages, two stories, hopefully to help you kind of get some handles on this. And then I'm gonna give you Five passages you can do in the coming week, kind of as homework. Here's a way to practice scripture engagement in a new way. So the first one's from Luke chapter eight, and I, I'm not gonna read through the whole passage. I'm gonna summarize it, and then I'm gonna read through it slowly. The character we're gonna be is Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue leader. Jesus has just returned from being, he went from Galilee over to Gerasene, and he's back now. And Jairus basically has a horrible situation going on, asked Jesus for help. Along the way, Jesus heals a woman who has been subject to bleeding for years and ultimately will make his way to Jairus' house and do a miracle there too. So I want you to remember, you're Jairus. I'm gonna walk you through my experience of this. It does not mean you would share my exact sentiments. This is not an idea that we all would imagine it the same way. It's allowing us to engage in the scripture with all of our senses, with our thoughts, our emotions, and our questions. That's what we're doing. And that's what often we miss in this. So we begin at verse 40. It says, when Jesus returned, this is Luke chapter eight, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Now, when I say you wanna engage in the passage, it might be that you even consider the environment. Now, I know most of you haven't been to the Sea of Galilee. You could even look it up in pictures, but picture a lake, because that's what it is. It's, you can actually see across to both sides. Picture Jesus coming back. It's mostly warm in that environment for a good part of the year. So I picture it being a hot day 
It's dusty, it's sandy. And then I picture a crowd, which I am not prone to enjoy crowds. So I'm immediately thinking, this does not sound like a fun environment. A crowd immediately meets him. I know something dramatic's happened. And then it says, Jarius, the synagogue leader, this is me, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, I don't know how many of you are parents or how many of you have kids. You know, I I have one daughter and now I have a daughter-in-law as well and I have a granddaughter as well, but I was thinking back to even just having my daughter. She's on death's bed. How desperate do you feel? How much are you thinking, what can I do? Is there any solution available to me? Are you getting an idea of how you might enter the text differently? I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, if that's my daughter, I'm freaking out. I'm gonna think, is there any way I can bargain with anyone to get any help? And I hear about Jesus and I go, I'm going. Now he's falling on his feet, begging Jesus for help. I'm suddenly feeling that. I'm desperate. It put me in a different place than just reading this as a story. Let me continue with that in mind. It says, as Jesus was on his way, it's all it says in Luke's account, which just means Jesus told him yes. We don't really hear that he says much. He just goes. And then it says, the crowds almost crushed him. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, Jesus is going with me. Something's gonna happen. You you feel excitement, don't you? Like it's peaking up. This guy's coming. He's been delivering people of demons, doing all sorts of things. Then it says they, the crowd almost crushed him. Can you feel the crowd coming in and closing in and suddenly thinking, the guy who's going to help me is going to get killed? Do, do you feel suddenly the, the roller coaster that's starting to happen for Jarius? I just want you to picture it differently than we normally would. So now he tells us that. Now it tells us there's a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. No one could heal her. Now Jairus doesn't know any of this. Is just giving us explanation. She comes up behind Jesus, touches the edge of his cloak. She's healed. Jesus now says, you just know there's a crowd and they're crunched in. And Jesus says, who touched me? And then Peter's going, lots of people are touching, you know, crowding and pressing against you. If I'm Jairus, I'm thinking, why are you asking this too? I mean, we're almost crushed and you're asking who touched you. I don't get this. So I'm just as confused as Peter. I'm still not sure where I should be in this. I've moved from up to a little bit down. Jesus says that someone touched me and I know that power has gone out. Which by the way, if you went through this text as Jesus, you could ask different questions like what's it feel to have power? What does that mean? You ask different questions. Then the woman seeing that she couldn't go unnoticed comes trembling in the presence of all the people. She tells them why she touched him, how she'd been healed. And I love Jesus' response. Daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. So now I'm having, if I'm I'm Jarius, I'm having mixed things. I should be increased in my faith because look, he healed someone else. I'm also thinking, man, he gave up power. I sure hope he's got enough left. Like it's still a little mixed, but I'm starting to move up again. It's getting more hopeful. Look what he just did. And he's saying faith healed her. I might even be thinking, man, I hope I have enough faith. I'm desperate. Jesus continues hearing this, or no, while Jesus was still speaking, now someone comes from my house, it says Jairus, and says, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. Now we tend to run past this, but what would that be like for you to hear? I was desperate. I asked this messianic person if they'd come and help. He said he would. He stopped to heal this woman and talk to her about it. Now I just heard my kid's dead. Do you feel the roller coaster? I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. I'm despairing now. And then Jesus responds, 
to Jairus. He looks right at me. Don't be afraid, just believe she will be healed. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? I, I want you to, to think about this with your imagination. Think of all the ups and downs that Jairus is going through. I'm at the end. I don't know what's going to happen. Now the Messiah says that he's going to come. Now we're getting almost trampled. Now I'm watching someone else get healed and I'm wondering how that's going to work. And then someone tells me she's dead. I don't have a grid for after she's died, by the way. Jesus says, let's go anyway. I'm getting excited again, but I got to have some fear, don't I? At least I would. Now maybe Jarius didn't, but I would. It's still mixed, but it's moving in a good direction again. It continues. When he arrives at the house of Jairus, he doesn't let anyone go in except Peter, James, and John and the child's father and mother. So I'm, I think I would be feeling very special. Listen, I'm glad he's doing this. I'm glad we're in here. I don't understand why and who. Meanwhile, all the people are wailing outside. Jesus says, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him knowing she's dead. Now here it is again. I've gone back up. He's gonna take us in. But all the words around me are saying, no, it's not gonna get better. I want you to see the ride Jarius is on. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Jesus takes her by the hand and says, my child, get up. Her spirit returned at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> her parents were astonished. Now, have you ever read that and just thought, that's nice. Your kid just got brought back to life. Is astonished really the word you'd use? Does it occur to you that would be a life-changing moment? Like you kind of want to pause and have a big musical crescendo and have everything go in slow-mo, don't you? Like her just slowly getting up. I'm back. Like I, that's amazing what he just saw. It life-changing. And the only advice Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Now, is that different than just reading the passage? I think it is. When I put myself in there, there were lots of things that impacted me. I was impacted thinking when God moves and miraculously, there will be a lot of opposition and a lot of up and down. It will go well, it will go poorly. It will go well, it will go poorly. There's something to learn about staying with things, even in the bad news, isn't there? Have you ever had something where you asked and then you got bad news, you thought, I'm done asking? No, no, don't stop. I mean, that was one of the things I felt the Lord show me. Some of it was just that I don't ever even think about miracles and ask for God to do them. Now, suddenly that turns into prayer. God, would you meet me in the things that seem overwhelming right now? Could you give me strength to want to endure things even when there's bad news? Could I get to that place where I believe and see you move and restore life in the midst of death? Are you seeing how suddenly prayer is different and our connection to God is different? just through interacting over a text in a different way, using our imagination, putting ourselves in the story. I'm not trying to have you exegete the passage and say all that it means. I'm saying God can speak to you in the midst of it just by allowing yourself to enter it. Now, if you entered it as the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, you'd have a whole nother take on it. If you entered it as Jesus, if you entered it as one of the disciples, something different would grab you. But you get the picture, I hope. Let me do one more. And I want to go back to what I told you. This is the actual passage where it says they were praying constantly and show you, at least for me, how I believe this makes more sense now. This is the beginning of Acts. 
It's the time when Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, that account of Jesus' life, and then he writes Acts to help us understand how Jesus lived and moved. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. It tells a bit of that, and then he's telling about this final occasion when Jesus gives directions to them, talks about the coming of the Spirit, and then he leaves them, and what happens. So we'll take it at verse four. We go through verse 14 in Acts chapter one. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, meaning Jesus, after he rose from the dead, it says he gave them this command. And I forgot to tell you, I put myself as Peter. You can be any of the disciples. That's what I want us to think about. We're one of his followers. We are eating with him. He's now giving us a command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? There's nothing in here that tells us he's leaving. It just tells us that they're gonna be given this. And don't forget, this is what I thought about. If I'm Peter, I needed a lot of direction from Jesus a lot of time. Can you think of all the times he messed up and Jesus had to course correct or move him along? Like I'm pretty desperate for him to tell me what to do. So it's a nice idea he's given the spirit. And one of the things, the question that follows, and I know this because of other passages, they were always believing that God would bring his kingdom, meaning a political, powerful authority. So it it shows that. They gather around him and ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to make us a power again? Now, because what it's telling me is I'm confused. I really don't know what he's saying. And now he responds, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, we look back at this and think that's wonderful. If I'm Peter, I am really freaking out right now. I don't really understand what he's going to do. What, what does it even mean, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? What's it mean he's giving us his spirit? And by the way, I needed him all the way along. I actually started writing a list of questions I would have for Jesus when he took off. Like, how did you leave us? I don't know if you're feeling this way, but I got desperate. I literally sat there going, I, I got a lot more questions. Could you come back? And, I'm, and I love what happens because it says they were intently looking up into the sky as he was going. It's like they just kept looking. Is he coming back? Is he just flying? Is he like Superman taking off? He's going to come back. Like they don't know what to make of this. And I'm thinking that's how I would be. I, how did he go? He's got to be coming back. There's got to be more than just give us a few instructions and take off. Does he not know our lack of skill? That's what I'd be thinking. We need a lot more direction than this. You overestimated. It says, after that, these two men dressed in white stood beside them, meaning angels, men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking at the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him going. Which again, I don't even know what that means to them at that time. I'm confused. The apostles go back to Jerusalem and it says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the others. Now suddenly for me, constantly made a different impact because I realized if I'm Peter, I don't know what to do. I don't know what it means the Spirit's coming. I don't know how long it's gonna take. I know Jesus rose and I know he took off. I'm kind of freaking out right now. You know what hit me? I'm desperate and I need him. Does that change how you look at constantly prayed? Because it changed how I did In fact, what it's impacted me since that time 
is I've realized just how independent and how comfortable I am. Now I pray, I seek God, but things are pretty good. And I'm not sure I really understand what I'm missing sometimes. And what it's changed for me just from that passage is I now pray for desperation and dependence. Because I think they were onto something we're not. Do you see how engaging in a passage with our imagination and putting ourselves in the story might change how God speaks to us? When I hear somebody say, you know, I never hear from God, I don't know, I'd wonder, what if you just engaged in scripture like this? Maybe you'd start to discover his words and his presence in a new way as a part of prayer because prayer is making our home with him. What might happen if we did this together? What might happen if we started putting ourselves in the story? So I want to give this a simple application for today, and I'd love you to take a picture of this. This is my ask of you. It's five days of reading that I put in. So on the first day, I want you to read the story of David and Goliath. I gave you a start point at 1 Samuel 17, 17 to 50. There's more to the story, but you can jump in there. And I want you to be David in the story. And make no mistake, you will do this and you will see things David does and you might not think that way. Like there's times where David's not offended by people that I would both be torqued and really insecure. And it just asks, makes me ask different questions. On day two, three, and four, it says day one, two, and three, but of this passage, you're gonna do the same passage, which is a story of the prodigal son, Luke 11, 15 to 32. On the first of the three days, you're gonna put yourself in as the younger son. That's the one that rebels and goes away. On the second day, you're gonna put yourself in as the elder son, the one that sticks around and asks questions of what you experience. And the final day, you're gonna be the father. Tracking okay? Then for the very last day of the study, you're gonna to go to Acts 16, 16 to 40, and Paul and Silas are in prison and you're gonna be Paul. That's all I'm asking you to do. Giving you practice, five days, try this. And if you enjoy it, if it's helpful to you, what I'd encourage you to begin to look for stories just in the gospels as a way to start. Again, when you get into things like a letter that's explaining how to live, you won't find it the same way. But I will tell you this, once you practice this, even when you're reading text that is more about how to live, you'll enter it differently. It informs how you start to experience a text differently because you allow all of your senses and all of your thoughts and emotions and questions to engage in a way you probably haven't before. I know this is practical. It's not like, well, here's the message, now go this week. But it's, here's some handles. I wanna expand your view of prayer. What if you practice this as a new way to engage in scripture? And make no mistake, don't just do it alone. If we're all doing it, you can ask other people, hey, I tried that this week, what was that like for you? Every time I train on this, I, I ask people to come back as a group and we have shared learning and course correction that happens. Because people will share things like, I think this, and you go, well, that's not really, the passage doesn't say that, so it's okay that you're thinking that way, but they'll put things onto a character that's not what they said, and you course correct. It helps us, that's part of the community. I want you to get a picture because for me, this has been pretty significant and transformational and everywhere I've done it, it seems to be helping them. And my job is to help you grow in prayer and grow in making Christ your home. Here's a pathway to do it. So with that in mind, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna close out our time celebrating another beautiful sacred activity in communion, which is another place we experience and encounter his presence. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you desire to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, I ask that you would work not just today, but in our lives in the week ahead to do something beautiful as we sit alone and even talk together. 
God, may you open up every sense of us. You say love us with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we open up every facet of who we are to engage in your presence in the reading of scripture and prayer. I ask this in your name, amen.